Welcome to the Drawn to Scale podcast. I'm Pablo Cortez. And I'm Analicia Gomez. Our guests today are Jimmy Ta and Raul Bielsa. They are co-program directors of the Transporter Landscapes program at the uh, AA School in London, the Architecture Association School of Architecture. Uh, Jimmy and Raul, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Of course. Um, I think to start, maybe you can give us an overview of what the program is and what your uh, goals are with the program. Um, sort of a little bit of what, why it exists and what you guys are doing. To sum up like our program of transborder landscapes, it's really um, it's to address the geopolitical um, cartography of the landscapes in the Tijuana, Tijuana River. And so um, we really looked at it in, in, in a multifaceted way and what the program is, um, pretty much looking at it specifically if, if anyone is familiar with Dennis Cosgrove's reading, um, it's the social formation and symbolic landscape. If anyone wants to look that up, that's a specific book that we emphasize on. It's to really understand the economic development and the impact it has on the on the landscape, whether it's good or bad. It's it's how I guess how money kind of drives our development of of um, of our landscapes, right? And so in our case, really specifically, the San Diego Tijuana border, we looked at the um, Tijuana River and how there's so many factors and what drives the development of the Tijuana city and also the river and how we we create it today and and really just has that social economic impact. No, I, I just I was thinking that maybe we should explain no like like um, AA visiting a school no is part of the uh, architectural association in London and uh, it's kind of like summer workshops all around uh, the world. And so we just start this year uh, with the transported landscapes and basically uh, all the visiting schools you know, try to uh, kind of export uh, some of the teachings of the EA in London to other parts of the world. So we just kind of decided you know, that Tijuana and San Diego was like a, a really interesting place to start a workshop and to uh, you know, unveil some of the problems that, that happened there. And even we are not from there. Uh, well, so Jimmy is from California, so it's kind of close. Um, I'm from Spain, but I live in London, so I have some kind of Spanish, uh, you know, kind of uh, at least the language you know, to address uh, these two sides of the border. So uh, that was kind of the, the base uh, for like to choose this, this place. So on on that note, have you had like any coordination challenges being a studio being based in the UK and then coming here for these visiting workshops? I mean, obviously COVID the last year was a huge barrier, but um, you know, you said this was like your first year doing it. So have you what are your hopes kind of moving forward as we kind of move out of this pandemic mode? Yeah, our goal was always to you know, to go there from the beginning, but then COVID, ha- COVID happened and everything got uh, complicated no? for, our, for our first year. Um, so we just have to change no? how we approach the workshop. And at the end this year, we end up doing this, um, uh, how we call it, like this, uh, the symposium. Now that it was one day symposium with uh, a lot of uh, like uh, professors and practitioners around the world and then we did like a short short version of the workshop online you no know, instead of just 
to like the full course on site as we plan to do next year. Us being one of the many visiting schools all throughout um, the world, um, typically it's it's actually held for 10 days. So we, we reduced it to five days, just trying to see, you know, how does it really work as a online workshop? So it's this year is fully online and we had students um, all around the world. We had one from Australia, uh, one from Germany, one from London, and then just a few from Cal Poly Pomona. So we, we had a we had a few uh, diverse groups. So it was it was great having it online this year. That's awesome that you're able to have a wider reach, right? That you maybe maybe otherwise wouldn't have been able to. Um, would you be able to talk a little bit about some of the major issues that you've uncovered during your research? Um, you know, social politically and. Uh, uh, climate-wise along the border? There, there's a, So we have six students and there's they all have branched out to create their own topics. Um, so we'll, we'll name a few uh, projects that we were working on with them. Uh, shout out to Isabel Mathers. She worked on um, the Tijuana um, the Tijuana City's uh, maquiladoras factories, which is our pretty much um, pretty much they are um, factories that that produce particular products, um, whether it's clothing or is it technology driven, maybe it's like cell phone parts. Um, she's looking at particular factories that are located in Tijuana. And a lot of these factories were actually lo located in border cities. Uh, Tijuana is a border city. Um, Mexicali is another border city. And, and she was really mapping where all those are and looking at how the impacts of how it's marginalizing certain neighborhoods. Um, and and looking at that, uh, what's really interesting in her finding was that many of these factories are actually not owned by um, uh, by Mexican residents, but some of these some of these factories are actually owned by foreign countries, which is quite interesting. Um, these maquiladoras, the some of them were owned by U.S., so they uh, some some of the U.S. companies they own properties, and, and they would marginalize. Um, they would get cheap labor and and um, get you know products um, cheaply by outsourcing to other countries, which is quite interesting. But with that, there's that negative effect, right? When we talk about the social formations in Dennis Cosgrove's book, uh, we really talk about how the social economic impacts of people's lives and how the economy really drives the landscape. It, um, it marginalizes the, the, the local neighborhoods. And um, then there's this discussion of how there's a rise of gated communities versus um, just like uh, the, a divide between who lives in the Maquiladoras neighborhoods versus those who live in gated communities. And it's like that divide between the two neighborhoods, really, right? Raul, did you want to add anything to that? No, yeah, yeah. That that was a really interesting uh, uh, discovery, you know, that how those two were related. And I think it also um, is related to uh, also what uh, Tatiana Bilbao was talking in the symposium no? about like the, how these two cultures just travel from one side to another but they don't um, it, it's not like a, like a exact uh, change so it's like okay so Mexicans that go back to Mexico but that have like that American culture but it's not that American culture it's like a mix it's like a new thing so I guess no, like these gate communities uh, that are related also no, with the maquilladoras are trying to copy you know, this American lifestyle kind of thing, but at the end, uh, it's, it's, it's like another new thing. And I thought that was really interesting. 
Yeah, I think the most interesting thing I've found, like looking at it, is really, you know, it's something that you don't think about very often. Is like that full juxtaposition. Like you have this borderline, you know, literally in the sand, but it doesn't change when you're just because you have these policies that are different that may make it easier to turn a profit you're still impacting and affecting the surrounding landscape and the surrounding communities and so it's like you have just above downtown Tijuana you have those premium outlets that are you know everything you know super nice landscaped to the nines um, and then you have pollution and raw sewage literally going into the river right below you um, but yeah, so I think it's it's really interesting work that you guys are doing and kind of making people see that um, those all those sides, you know, the river, the river is going to keep running, you know, just because. And so if you're throwing stuff into it just because it's more convenient for you, it's going to impact eventually and impact the environment. So kudos to you guys. It's it's I mean, just even the little research I've done off of your website, it's been like really eye-opening and impactful. I'm curious if in your research you found any groups um, that have actually tried to make some change, right? Sort of mitigate some of those issues like pollution in the river. Um, are there, is there anybody actively trying to, uh, to make some changes that you've, that you've found? We've been talking with um, a, a collaborator in Tijuana, Antonia Neta. Um, Peregrina, uh, she's she's an advocate for um, uh, pretty much uh, bringing back the Tijuana River to to its original state. So there's there's been discussions about that and how she's trying to mitigate the pollutions that are being flooded into Tijuana River. Um, I know that as just those of you who live in LA, uh, as a backstory behind um, Tijuana River is that that Tijuana River is also channelized as well. And so those who live in the LA River or close to the LA River, it's that similar condition and how uh, Antonia, she really looks at how to uh, mitigate that aspect because she's really concerned about the negative impacts of having Michelodora dumping sewage right down down the um, down the channel. So there's been discussions about that. We've been trying to work with her. I guess I guess next next year, if we are on site, uh, it will be kind of like the next step, you know, trying to reach more organi organizations working around uh, the River Tijuana issues and some other you know, communities or like uh, ONGs uh, uh, just working around the river so we can approach them and, uh, you know, share the knowledge and trying to understand Know, how to communicate those issues and how to make uh, make them visible. Has the program come across any of the companies that have set up shop in Tijuana? Have they have they seen any of these companies make any actual progress and or changing the way they're doing business and and the way they're doing things to um, you know make some sort of positive change for these communities? But it's a good question. <laughs> yeah, it is a great question. It's something that we definitely we. We definitely would like to get into. I think that's a really interesting point because that that is a that's a good thing to understand. Yeah, so kind of like the next phase. Yeah, I guess for this first year, and because it was online and everything, we kind of focus on a more larger scale uh, kind of issues. Let's say. So I don't know. There was another project quite interesting too about you know how the 
uh, the phone communications, like the, the, the 4G or 5G, and how all that work in the border, you know, like how uh, different telephone companies will work in one side or the other, or like what are the uh, difference? Like if you live in the border, you can take advantage of, I don't know, like, you know, like comp like telephone companies in the other side or in this side, and also how all these um, uh, non-tangible issues, you know, about the, 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 the cell phone uh, companies, how also like a physical impact, you know, like how, like where are these towers, like these communications towers installed? Uh, uh, there are more in the U.S. border or there are more in the, in the uh, Mexico border. And like, is this like an efficient way of work around the border? Uh, something new needs to happen in between, like, I don't know, these kind of issues, no? And, and this was a project um, by, I remember his name right now, but it was a really Tom's interesting, course. yeah, Tom's, yeah. And yeah, it was Tom, a really Tom. interesting approach. I, I, I think it kind of goes back to like that marginalized neighborhood idea again, is where if a phone company really wants to put a service or I guess cell phone towers into a certain neighborhood, right? They wouldn't want to invest in a remote region of let's say Tijuana, they rather invest all their money in more like populated areas so they can make, it's more bang for the buck for the telephone company, right? And so they kind of leave out like the, the remote communities. It's kind of like that that profit aspect of the landscape and how, how money's kind of driving the force of the development of landscapes, like how, how we do things with our real estate and land development, right? And that all kind of ties back into the the river, right? The Tijuana River, and how that's being affected by all this development and all these, uh, all this uh, work um, along the border. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the research that you've come across uh, regarding the river and um, how it's being affected. Yeah, so we we had um, we had two students or so, I guess two or three students were looking at the the runoff of the Tijuana side to the San Diego side. So the background story is that the Tijuana River is actually flowing. Um, the, the high point of the Tijuana River is actually coming from Mexico, and it flows down towards San Diego. Um, and so the lowest point, it, it would feed off into the um, San Diego Basin. When we looked at that, we were trying to find the source of, like, why is there so much pollution on the Tijuana side? And just really trying to understand that aspect. It was the fact that um, the sewer infrastructure in the Tijuana side is not fully developed or not fully um, um, developed. I guess you know, not fully developed to handle uh, particular rain surges. When there's high, heavy rains, a lot of sewage dispersed into the Tijuana River, um, and it's all channelized down to the San Diego side. So there's there's a lot of argument between the San Diego side and Tijuana because all the water is actually flowing down towards uh, San Diego's Imperial Beach City, and so there's a lot of complaints of how um, there's so much pollution at Imperial Beach. They close down the beach certain during heavy rain seasons, and no one can use the beach. So there's like that backlash between the two countries. Where, well, well, in the Tijuana side, that's our river. We could do whatever we want with it. We, it's 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 on our land. We don't really care what goes down there. But then the Imperial Beach side so kind of says, well, I, you're, you're polluting our 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 river. And so they in the U.S. side they built. Um, a sewage treatment facility towards the border and but then the, the, I guess the, the question is now the big question is 
do you reinvest money to build more sewage plants on the San Diego side? Or do you actually go back to Tijuana side and you kind of revitalize the river and create like a green infrastructure approach, right? And so we had students looking at it in, in two different ways. How, how does a channelized river really impact um, the Tijuana River? And so, and so we really looked at in that critical mind, uh, cr critical lens, really. Uh, I was just going to say that, yeah, we, I remember that we have, yeah, like great discussions about that and about, you know, how, uh, yeah, the pollution is coming from the Tijuana side to the to San Diego side, but um, at the end, you no, know, if Tijuana uh, uh, goes for a more uh, blue-green infrastructure for the river and, you no, know, renaturalize the river and make it less uh, with less pollution at the end that will have benefits in the uh, in the san diego side uh, too so i think it's about you no know, like both of them working together because the benefits will will help uh, both sides of the of the border yeah i think you know between climate change and and droughts that keep you know we keep facing in california it's definitely become more of a forefront issue so i think you know the work that you guys are doing and the research that you guys are doing will be like, you know, very instrumental moving forward, you know, because time, time is essentially running out on, on getting a handle on some of these issues. Um, you know, and I think the pandemic has at least helped showed us that, you know, viruses and water and all of that, those natural things don't stop at border lines. And so, you know, how do we work, work together um, and use the resources or tools or, you know, knowledge that we have, um, you know, across borders and try to help each other um, so that we don't impact people in, the, in a negative way, like polluting rivers and closing down beaches. Yeah, that was really interesting, too, because another student was working on uh, kind of like animal flows between the border you know, and how uh, no, we should we should take a look to not only humans but also non-humans and how that how the border affects them. And he was looking at I don't remember the name of this uh, Jimmy. Uh, the... It's, a ab it's a abalone, which is ah yeah. It, it's a pretty much it's a it's a sea snail or, or shellfish in California that's really important in our California ecosystem. <laughs> Anyways, Raul, go on. <laughs> no, no, that I, I never heard about that before and it was really interesting. No? And I think looking at these uh, cycles of animals no, and how uh, like this human interaction affect to their uh, natural mobility or uh, life is also uh, quite important. No? As you were saying, like pollution, um, uh, animals and all these non-human things that flows around the border also has uh, has an impact on on them. Yeah, it, his it, his project was really interesting. Um, it was the fact that there's like this um, really intricate web system of like how the abalone population is really impacted by you know um, how our I, I guess what humans do to our ecosystem. And it's when you look at the abalone population, that's a native species. I believe it's specifically the black abalone, which is an endangered species. I, I don't remember the exact name, but I think it's a black abalone um, that runs along the California coast to the Tijuana side as well. Um, 
and they're really they're really dependent on the kelp forests along the coast of California. But then a lot, a lot of these kelp forests are actually being diminished by many factors. A lot of it has to do with per, um, I, he was telling us about like it was the purple sea urchin was actually a um, invasive species. So it's really that humans were introducing purple sea urchin that ate, that ate all the kelp forests, and there's really like nothing left for the abalones to even eat, right? And so the fact that there's that aspect to it, pollution's being dumped into the uh, to the oceans, is it's diminishing our kelp forests as well. And to make it even worse, there's also been um, there's been articles that uh, the student's name is Gustavo. Uh, he, Gustavo um, Coronia, he's he was researching how um, there was actually smuggling of abalone. Where the, we, in the U.S. side of, of San Diego, there's a lot of strict laws. You can't harvest abalone. Um, very strict laws. But then there's very lenient laws in the Tijuana, Mexico side. There's, you can harvest them. It's not a big deal. So sometimes you would see people from the U.S. side, they come out, they, uh, they pass by the border, smuggle some abalone, trying to bring it back. And that was just like wow we didn't even know that right and and it's just like this intricate web system of like it's it's purple sea urchins making a dent in the abalone right it's it's the um it's the kelp forest is being diminished and then the pollution is being diminished and humans are smuggling them right it's like all this many approaches of, of what's happening to the abalone population it was like wow we didn't even know about that <laughs> Well, and I, I think the crazy thing, too, is like you're, you keep talking about the, that kind of like web of ecosystem and, you know, the parts of San Diego that are now California and the United States were Mexico at one time. Like all of this region was one full operating ecosystem before, you know, the Spanish came and settled before other people came and settled. And so, you know, what we're basically chopping off legs of the, this ecosystem. And now we're seeing that kind of post-industrial impacts of that. And how can landscape architecture and architecture be kind of those, be a tool or a solution, or at least a, a conduit for understanding those problems that are arising because we have, you know, cut off some of these legs of, um, you know, or interfered with this this web, this natural web that existed for so long before humans came along and decided they need Nikes and other things like that. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see if uh, these borders, these these lines weren't uh, in place, whether or not some of these issues would actually arise. Um, uh, Raul and uh, Jimmy, can you maybe also talk about what your plans for uh, expanding the program? You had mentioned um, you know, you'd like to see some of this work going on in, in some areas of uh, of Europe. So in terms of expansion, so right now, since we're really focusing on Tijuana right now, we're staying here in Tijuana um, for the next two, two to three more years or so, uh, researching in Tijuana side. However, we are potentially looking into uh, expanding in different um uh, different parts of the border in the U.S. as well. Uh, we looked at, you know, looking at the Arizona-Mexico border, Texas border, New Mexico border. So those are some options that we are really interested in and how they have different social economic issues and political issues as well. But then we're also open to um, different regions around the world. Since trans-border is not just happening only in the U.S., we also looked at how global, global borders um, have a there's a there's a lot of more issues globally right there's um we even talked about what if we looked at the spain and morocco border it's like the the, 
the ocean border in that aspect, right? And so we looked at in these different ways. Yeah, I guess at the end you can, uh, like the learnings no, from the Tijuana-San uh, Diego border can be you know, extrapolated to other borders around the world. Uh, well, not all, not all of that, but like some, uh, no, some issues and some uh, learnings from that. And that's why we uh, tried to do with the symposium also this this year. No, uh, not all the speakers were about the Mex- U.S.-Mexican border, but um, they have uh, like projects. No, in other, they've been leading. Uh, some uh, teaching about borders in other parts of the world. So that was interesting for us, like how you can also get all that knowledge from that is uh, done in other parts of the world, in other border uh, areas, and how you can apply that to the Tijuana, uh, Tijuana San Diego border. Very cool. Yeah, I think we're coming up in the end here. Um, Anna, you had one more questions for uh, for Raul and Jimmy, right? Yeah, I mean, I was just interested, you know, learning about, um, you know, the history of, of AA um, and kind of how different of a school and like thinking um, and learning it is compared to some of the other ones. So maybe if you guys want to expand a little bit of, on that background. So, yeah, we we did together the uh, Landscape Urbanism Master in the, uh, in the AA a few years ago back. And... I guess what is interesting about that is not so much, you know, when you hear the, the word landscape, it's, it's almost like you see like a nature, uh, you know, fields or, or forest, that kind of thing. But at the end, uh, landscape or landscape urbanism is just like a way to understand uh, the urbanization of the world as just like, like one thing, no? Like when you say city, you understand that uh, it's not only the build part, but it's also all the connections that you need to make to run the city, you know, like all the uh, resources and all the uh, supply chains and all the things around them, no? And I guess that's what we mean by landscape, no? Like every, all the connections and all all the, um, yeah, all this, uh, the, the needs that, that uh, build environment needs, let's say. So I think that's what is interesting about that. And... I guess the projects, uh, there is not like a specific no, type of project uh, for that. It's mostly at the end, it can be anything, no? Like you can just start analyzing a site and you will understand no, like all the connections that are linked to that site, no? As well, like in the Tijuana San Diego border, no? Like uh, the border per se is already like a really huge condition that is driving. Uh, two cities, no, and it's driving how policies are implemented in one side and in the other side, and how all that work together, no, and this net or a web of things that happen around. Yeah, and I think one thing that we, at least working on the, at, at least when I and Raúl were at the landscape urbanism program, it's something that what I realized about what landscape urbanism is is it's not just about building or superimposing certain designs onto a site is about really understanding the context and maybe what we propose may not even be a built element. It's about understanding what we draw and what we can inform policy and inform at the at the um, let's say at the top down level, right? You 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 create certain drawings and research that you can help government to influence certain policies, i.e., you know, we could as what we discussed 
this entire year about the Green New Deal. That's something that could be implemented and what we can create certain research that could be um, that could inform policies, right? Or maybe even a, the, uh, the, the bottom up approach where we present certain research ideas to local communities and to advocate certain uh, local groups. Um, and how can we use that to um, empower certain communities to develop their communities, right? Like uh, create, creating um, like healthier forces, for example, um, at a local level. So sometimes design doesn't have to be built. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I was going to add that also it's about understanding design as everything in the process. No, it's not just no to design a landscape, to design a building, but all all the analysis and all the not this type of projects is also design and how you approach it is is a design approach and even most of the people know that uh, came to the workshop or that are uh, in this kind of projects we have a design background at the end uh, me as an architect or jimmy uh, as a landscape architect uh, the the tools and the skills that you need to to get this type of approach uh, it can be a bit different. So with the workshop, uh, the workshop is also about you not know, for the students to get this this kind of skills that they can apply in order to to you know create these cartographies or these projects um, uh, for the Tijuana and, and San Diego uh, side. It's a very holistic approach to design, right? To learn about that stuff, putting it all together. Um, well, thank you guys again for uh, taking the time to join us for this episode. Uh, where can listeners uh, go to and learn more about the uh, program? You can visit us on Transborder Landscapes on our Instagram. So if you look up Transborder Landscapes, we'll be there. Um, you can also find us at the AA Visiting School website. Or if you type in Architectural Association Transborder Landscapes, you'll find us there. There's more information about that. We normally held our um, hold our annual workshops um, during the summertime. So we project to hold our workshop um, sometime in December 2022. We will probably have it on site and we'll, we may even do a, a hybrid online as well. We'll see. <laughs> so we'll make sure to uh, put that information, those links in the show notes for people to check out. Um, Jimmy and Raul, hey, thanks again for uh, taking the time to uh, join us for the episode. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Bye, nice to meet you guys.